This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Don Rothwell. Don is a professor of international law at the ANU College of Law. He joined me on the phone to talk about the International Whaling Commission meeting currently being held in Brazil and Japan's attempts to reverse the moratorium on commercial whaling. You are tuned in to 3RRRFM. This is Amy Mullins. I now get to speak with Don Rothwell from the ANU. He is uh, based up in Canberra, of course, and Don uh, joins me on the phone to talk about the International Whaling Commission meeting that is currently being conducted in Brazil. And, uh, well, it's all about whaling, certainly commercial whaling, um, which is currently banned in most parts of the world. Um, There's a a small amount of whaling that is able to be done by small groups of people who have traditionally uh, relied upon whales for a food source, and that's up in the Nordic areas. But you know, for all intents and purposes, whaling is um, is banned as far as I, my understanding is. And uh, Japan is seeking to revoke that ban and uh, to enable them to whale even more than they are already currently doing. So Don Rothwell joins me now. Hi there. Good morning. How are you doing? Morning. I'm really good, thank you. And thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're welcome. So I'd really like to actually just start with a bit of background. Um, I know that many people who are passionate about whales and the environment would have remembered that Australia played a key role really in bringing Japan to um, the International Court of Justice around scientific whaling and the whaling they were conducting. And from memory, there wasn't legal precedent around this court case. And so it required relying upon the principles of law that exist around this area and that you provided some very important expertise and insight. Um, what was your involvement in that case and what was the outcome? So I was initially approached by uh, a non-governmental organisation, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, um, and I started working with them back in 2005, providing them with some initial legal advice as to the way in which Japan's conduct of its whaling program in the Southern Ocean uh, could be challenged. Uh, And then um, following the election of the Rudd government, uh, the Australian government decided to pick up some of that legal advice and ultimately commence proceedings against Japan in the international court. And as you've alluded to, uh, Australia ultimately was successful in winning, winning that challenge Uh, in March uh, 2014. However, most importantly, um, that decision did not abolish uh, Japanese scientific whaling, but rather ruled that the then whaling program that Japan was undertaking was contrary to international law. So since then, Japan has modified its whaling program and continues to whale under a significantly adjusted whaling program, which they call New Rep A. So really it's, I guess, a legal loophole that they're exploiting at the moment. Correct, and that's the problem with the international court decision in that whilst Australia was successful, uh, Article 8 of the Whaling Convention, which is the article that Japan relies upon to undertake so-called scientific research, uh, still remains in place in the convention and that's the basis upon which Japan says legally uh, they can conduct their their current scientific whaling program in the Southern Ocean. Mm, Because um, I did mention there that 
killing whales for profit was banned in 1986, but there are some exemptions there that Norway and Iceland have also uh, taken advantage of, but certainly not, I don't think, to the same extent as Japan. Is that correct? That's correct. So there are a number of exceptions for what's called Aboriginal subsistence whaling, and uh, the International Whaling Commission regularly considers very small quotas of 10 or less whales that are given to uh, Aboriginal groups, uh, principally uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. There are some other groups also in the Caribbean. Um, Iceland and Norway fall under certain exceptions because of the uh, legal obligations that they have under the Convention. Um, but as a general observation, uh, the points that you've been making are correct, that there's very little commercial whaling undertaken and that there is some um, Aboriginal subsistence whaling undertaken. Indeed, and we've seen reports recently that Japanese whalers have killed over 50 mink whales in an Antarctic marine protection area this year. Are there current rules around uh, protected areas in this law? Well, interestingly, um, there are not, um, and that's another loophole that Japan is able to take advantage of. So in the Southern Ocean at the moment, which surrounds Antarctica, we have what's called a, a Southern Ocean whale sanctuary where all commercial whaling is prohibited. We also have some marine protected areas that you've alluded to, um, but those provisions don't cover uh, the conduct of Japan's so-called scientific whaling program, which is currently conducted under new Rep A. So once again, uh, Japan is able to circumvent uh, those limitations on commercial whaling in the Southern Ocean. Indeed. And so, I mean, a lot of uh, environmentalists and other interested people and politicians believed that Australia had a great success in that court win. And then we've seen uh, Japan recommence its scientific whaling, as you say, under different conditions. There are avenues available to Australia in terms of appeals. Is there a reason why Australia hasn't uh, continued to pursue this in the court? Yes, um, there's one important reason, and that is that since the 2014 decision of the International Court, Japan has adjusted its acceptance of the jurisdiction of the International Court, and that would create a significant barrier to Australia seeking to go back into the court and challenge the legitimacy of the new Rep A program. Uh, having said that, there are some other legal options that Australia uh, could choose to pursue, but uh, at this point in time, it's not done so. We come to this point where um, we've seen Bob Brown be um, very vocal around this meeting that's occurring in Brazil for the International Whaling Commission and he has certainly criticised Australia in terms of the delegate that we have sent, our representative in the government, uh, is Senator Anne Rustin, who is the Assistant Minister for International Development and the Pacific. Uh, that's not a cabinet-appointed position. And is it the case that it's, kind, it's quite unprecedented uh, in terms of sending such a junior minister whose portfolio it isn't really uh, in, involved in to, to go to such an important meeting like this? Well, certainly in the time that I've been following these matters, I cannot recall an occasion when the Australian Minister for the Environment has not attended uh, an IWC meeting, and that's both uh, Liberal uh, ministers, including Malcolm Turnbull, who at one time was the Environment Minister and attended, uh, and Labor ministers such as Peter Garrett. So there's been a fairly strong bipartisan support for always sending the relevant minister uh, within which uh, the whaling issue sits, and that's, in this instance, the Minister for the Environment, Melissa Price. 
Yes, exactly. And and I want to talk about the commission itself so that we can understand its significance and the powers that it does have. What was it set up for and what is it, um, I guess, currently dealing with in terms of its remit? Well, look, one of the interesting things is that the, the commission was set up in 1946, so it's actually a very old uh, international body. And, of course, when it was originally set up, it was very much designed to uh, regulate whaling, um, but to that end, oversee whaling as an industry. Um, but as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, that very much changed in the 1980s with the introduction of the moratorium on whaling. And so uh, since the 1980s, the, the International Whaling Commission has adopted very much a, a conservation-focused approach. Um, but that doesn't mean that that has unanimous support within the Commission and countries like Japan and other allies... Um, have been seeking to overturn the moratorium and ultimately uh, that's one of the proposals that if it was adopted this week in Brazil uh, would set in train a process which could could see the moratorium overturned and commercial whaling resumed by as early as 2020. Well, we've heard some discussion around the fact that Japan has been lobbying certain countries to come onto their side to support their motion uh, to recommence commercial whaling. Do you have an idea at the moment as to how likely it is that Japan will garner any kind of significant support for this particular motion? Look, I think it needs to be acknowledged that uh, in the past when these types of votes have been held, um, the vote has been relatively close, uh, and all that's required is a majority of those uh, members uh, attending. Um, I'm advised that we're looking at about 80, uh, sorry, uh, 70, 74, 75 members uh, attending the IWC meeting in Brazil this week. Um, there are apparently some new member states that have joined uh, with the support and backing of Japan. So it could end up being a, a fairly close-run thing, given that all that's required is a majority, as I've said. Exactly. And so it's interesting to note that Anne Rustin is not staying for the whole meeting. In fact, I don't even think she's there for the majority of the time that this uh, meeting is being run. What kind of signal does something like that uh, send when Australia, who was the uh, greatest adversary, legal adversary to Japan, is not even uh, attending the meeting in full? Well, look, um, it, it is true. That's also my understanding that the uh, minister uh, will not be attending all of the meeting. Um, my understanding is that uh, tomorrow uh, in Brazil um, will be the critical day for the decision on the issue about uh, the Japanese proposal to put in place a process to overturn the moratorium. Um, the absence of the Australian minister, if the minister is indeed absent, absent will, I'm sure, be noted. Uh, and that will um, no doubt have some of an impact upon Australia's ability to lobby and put forward its its relevant position on the floor of the Commission. That said, um, Australia is represented by its uh, International Whaling Commissioner, uh, Dr Nick Gales. Dr Gales is a very respected uh, whaling scientist who's had a long experience with the IWC. So um, Australia will not be unrepresented at this meeting, um, but no doubt the, the absence of the minister will be noted, I'm sure. Yes, that's an excellent point to make. In terms of this vote and whether the moratorium might be lifted, what would be the consequence of that? And, I mean, how many countries are not conducting commercial whaling uh, that potentially would start up commercial whaling beyond Japan? 
Well, look, um, we've already spoken about Norway and Iceland, uh, and if we saw a, a change to some of the circumstances under which commercial whaling could be conducted, uh, Norway and Iceland, I'm sure, might revisit their circumstances under the Convention. Um, so, as I said, um, if Japan was successful with this vote uh, this week, that would set in train a process. Uh, the process would, uh, would would probably play out, I think, over the next 12 months or so. So we're not going to see an immediate resumption of commercial whaling. Um, Japan has strongly argued that uh, there should be a resumption of what's called small coastal-type whaling, and that's the taking of whales within the coastal waters within 200 nautical miles of the Japanese coastline. So there could be some quid pro quo here. Japan might say, well, look, we'd like to whale within waters adjacent to our coast, Australia might be prepared to make a concession on that point, providing Japan abandons uh, its Southern Ocean scientific whaling program. So there's a number of options in terms of this could play out. Uh, but as I said, we first of all need to get to a majority support for the Japanese reform proposal, and then we'll need to see how that proceeds over the next year or so. Indeed. And if we look at the flip side, I know there are some countries and, and individuals who are seeking to alter the purpose of the International Whaling Commission uh, for it to be more of a conservation body or a protection body rather than uh, what its original purpose was. Do you think that that kind of movement for change might eventually occur either, either at this meeting or in future? Well, um, we then come back, as you say, to the flip side, and that is whether those states who are supporting that type of proposal uh, really have majority support. Now, uh, it needs to be recalled that at the moment we do have a moratorium in place. We do have whale sanctuaries in place in the Southern Ocean and in the, you know, and in the Indian Ocean. So there is, a, in fact, a lot of framework in place already for conservation and, and support for whale stocks uh, and for the promotion of whale watching, uh, non-lethal means of research. Um, it's just that if those states wish to continue to pursue that uh, line of argument, uh, they need to be actively presenting uh, that position and arguing for that position at, at these IWC meetings. Indeed. And I know you do have colleagues over there in Brazil. Um, do you have any insight from them as to how discussions are playing out over there? Look, I think one of the interesting things at the moment is who, in fact, will be able to uh, vote uh, when it comes down to a vote. As I said, um, there are 75 states uh, with delegations attending. Uh, apparently only 74 of those can vote, but there's some question marks even amongst those 74. So it, there, there will be some issues about the eligibility of some of the delegations to be able to vote and participate uh, in the meetings. And, and that comes down to the question that I raised beforehand about Japan uh, seeking to garner some support by uh, new members to the International Whaling Commission. So that's a, a very pivotal point, you know, who actually has the eligibility to vote on the floor of the Commission when we come down to some crunch votes uh, later in the week. Indeed. And I, I wonder if you can um, give us some insight into Japan's stated intentions for its scientific whaling program and why it is so strongly and doggedly pursuing this whaling program. A lot of Australians, and I'm sure others, don't quite understand the motives behind it. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I think uh, Japan's position has always been uh, that the moratorium, uh, when it was adopted in the 1980s, was a temporary moratorium and that 
um, once whale stocks had returned to sustainable levels, uh, there should be a reconsideration of uh, permits being granted for commercial whaling. So part of Japan's justification for its uh, ongoing scientific program is to say, well, look, uh, we need to undertake research into whale stocks. We need to understand how sustainable and healthy those whale stocks are. And that research actually ends up informing us being able to make better decisions about ultimately making judgments about the resumption of commercial whaling. So that's that's one line of argument that Japan has consistently been made uh, over the last uh, two or three decades, really. Mm, it is really curious to think that one needs to kill whales in order to find out that kind of thing through a scientific study and that's probably why a lot of people are quite puzzled and we see that in other areas such as native forest logging and the greater glider more recently. Yes and and, and one of the points that uh, the Australian government has been making uh, over the past decade and Peter Garrett when he was environment minister was very strong on this point was to say that uh, there are now many many uh, non-lethal ways in which research can be conducted into whale stocks uh, in which a significant amount of data can actually be gathered uh, in terms of the status and the health of those whale stocks so why is there a need to undertake lethal means of research into whales. The Japanese response to that is to say, well, look, actually the convention permits us to undertake uh, lethal whaling and, and we will continue to do so. So we've got some significant legacy issues here, as this convention was originally negotiated back in 1946. Times have significantly changed uh, since then. Yes, and it's certainly uh, sometimes hard to make sure that the law and also conventions keep up with uh, contemporary changes in society, and I know that is quite difficult to do. If we were looking to change kind of international law, is, it, is that a difficult process to undertake? Yes, that's, a, that's actually a good question. And so even if Japan is successful in getting this resolution adopted, um, they're proposing that the whaling convention be modified so that uh, only a simple majority would be required to amend what's called the schedule of the convention. And it's a schedule uh, that currently contains all of the technical detail about uh, conservation and the moratorium that we've been considering this morning. Um, at the moment, a, a three-quarters majority of states is required to make those adjustments, so there needs to be a technical amendment of the convention. Um, an, an amendment of the convention, however, requires unanimous support and ultimately, uh, even if Japan is successful this week, I find it very difficult to see that there would be unanimous, unanimous support for amending the convention in the way that Japan is proposing. Don, thank you very, very much for your expertise and your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been extremely illuminating. Good. It's been great to speak with you. Three, triple, ah. Oh.